when I get ready to give a talk and I think about what I want to teach, I think about <clears throat> what place in the retreat is it, what would be the best message to give at this time. And I can usually think of a really good reason for saying what I'm going to say at this time of the retreat. And I realized as I sat down and I looked at what I was going to say and what I'd prepared, uh, these are remarks for coming into the last week of, for some people, quite a long retreat. And I realized that I could probably make the same talk on the first day of a retreat. (laughs) And that the talk is always really the same about remembering what it is that we're doing here and what our enterprise is together. And that every time we remember that, at whatever point we are, whether it's the very first day or the first evening or the next to the last evening or the last morning when we're going out again into our lives, to be able to say what we are trying to do one way or another is to move into the middle of our lives, which is really the only place from which we can see clearly, so that we can, in fact, see clearly and do that housekeeping, which is clearing out the dust that prevents us from understanding fully, responding wisely, being in our lives engaged with kindness and compassion for ourselves and for everybody else. The enterprise is always the same. I was particularly pleased to uh, realize that tonight, just about this time, I think, we are passing the vernal equinox. So now it is spring. And if we didn't think about spring cleaning, now is the spring cleaning time. And I think about this practice that we do as being a continual housekeeping. It's like a continual cleaning of the heart and the mind, keeping it polished, keeping it clear, taking out what doesn't need to be there, taking out the stories that are misleading and confusing so that we can live in the house of our heart. I'll tell you uh, an image that I've had in my mind for a couple of days. One day last week, um, I needed to go and have a uh, uh, bone density scan uh, to, which I have every year or two to check because I'm old enough so that osteoporosis is a kind of thing that you have to think about and get checked up, uh, up about, um, especially for those people like myself who seem to have that happening. So the good news is I seem to be fine or holding my own, but I needed to go to uh, the radiation laboratory at uh, Children's Hospital in the city. And so I got there a few minutes before my uh, appointment, and I sat there, and uh, it was an interesting experience. It's quite a small waiting room, but it was full of people. I got the last seat there. So for a while I was interested in... uh, I, I looked around at the people there, and I thought... It's amazing. We could do a wonderful diversity training here. We had men and women and children and all ages, young children, middle-aged people, older people, men and women. And because this is San Francisco, and uh, it's one of the things I love about this particular city, is it's such a marvelous ethnic variety. You can look around and see 
all the different places on the planet where this person may have come from or this person's parents may have come from. So it was wonderful. I looked around and thought, this is, I was really enjoying that. And everybody in their unique manifestation at their particular place in life. And then I thought to myself, we have one thing in common, in addition to the obvious thing about we're all human beings having a life, is we're all in a radiation laboratory. Then I thought, I wonder if I have the best story here. Uh, Normally, radiation laboratories, it's not like a supermarket. You go there with a, I mean, you go there usually with a particular story, and most often the story is not, um, is not a usual one and probably not so happy. Something is a worry. They're either treating it or looking for it or checking that it hasn't come back. It's not a regular place. Everybody doesn't go there. And then I saw one of the interesting things that I noticed at that point was that there's a television up on the room, on the wall of the room. Uh, and everybody in the room, with whatever story they had that had brought them there, was watching the story on the television. And it was a soap opera. And uh, it was a very interesting, you couldn't really hear it, but, uh, because, but it had closed caption, so you could read it. You could read it. And it had the usual dramatic uh, soap opera plot. Somebody's in trouble, somebody is sick, somebody's divorcing, someone's falling in love, somebody's contemplating an affair, somebody's being found out in an affair, everything. Uh, And I sat there about 10 minutes, and they have very brief little clips, and then a commercial, and a brief clip, and a commercial. But the stuff of life, in what one might imagine is an exaggerated form, but when you think about it, it's not an exaggerated form. They make this up because that's what's in people's lives. So you're reading the the closed caption, and I was watching it as well with everybody else. It was quite fascinating. Then I looked and I thought, everyone here probably, undoubtedly, has a soap opera of equal magnitude as the one that's up on the wall. We could turn off the television and all look at each other. <laughs> and and probably pray for each other and send each other wishes for mental happiness and physical well-being. I mean, nobody goes just to spend an afternoon in a radiation laboratory. So I thought to myself, why is everybody so preoccupied up there on the television? Why don't they look at each other or look at themselves? And that it's quite, at least it seems to me, that we don't look at ourselves because it's too frightening to look at ourselves, especially in a radiation laboratory. Then we are looking for something. The one person who wasn't looking at the television was reading a newspaper, like it was tremendously important what was in that newspaper. Nobody was looking at their own story, as far as I could tell. Somebody told me a story uh, this week, which is just an image. It's been in my mind all week. I've been thinking about it. About um, someone who worked in schools with young children. Said there was a preschool class with of uh, uh, preschool age children who uh, had the kind of uh, who were clearly uh, learning handicapped. That were. 
didn't have sufficient normal intelligence to be in a regular class progressing with regular people. So they were telling me about it. It was a wonderful class. And uh, uh, each of these children was being helped to the best of their abilities to participate and to do something appropriate for being in the class. And what they did in the morning was compile the morning's news. So one child would go out with the teacher and they'd say, is it raining or sunny? And the child would say, it's raining. And they'd say, is it cold or hot? And the child would say, it's cold. And then they'd go back in. The child would say, it's cold and raining. That's the first report for the morning news. And then someone else would say another aspect of the morning news. The child that had the most interesting assignment, I think, was the one whose assignment it was to take the role about who was present. Six people in the class. This little girl stood up and said, Betty, are you here? (laughs) And Betty said, yes, I'm here. Tom, are you here? Yes, I'm here. So I, I, I love the image. I think it's very dear. And also, I think we could look around. I could look at all of you and say, are you here? Because that's what we came to do. We came to get here. All of the people who came to see me this morning, I don't know if all, oh, maybe, maybe there's one more than, maybe all minus one or something, came in and said, it's falling apart, my practice. Uh, I was all quiet. Everything was great. I was so calm. I was so focused. I was so with every step, every breath, every everything. Suddenly, I have a flood of thoughts. My whole life is back. It's all fallen to pieces. Someone else said, I had it all together. I was so calm. Now I am flooded with fear. Someone else said, my body was great. My body was wonderful. I'd gotten over all the aches and pains. My body was great. Suddenly... It is filled with tension in my neck and my back and my front and all over the place. And I'm even in good health and I can't understand why this is happening to me. It's all falling apart. I'm doing it wrong. Somebody else said, I was sleeping wonderfully well. And all of a sudden, I am full of nightmares every night. It's a long story. One person said, I think, I'm doing great, so I don't want any instructions. Like, it's, it's just fine the way I've got it, and I don't want to mess with it at all. So, number one, here's two pieces of news. Everybody is doing great. Everybody is doing great. It's not a mistake for anybody to have what they have or feel what they feel. Here's two pieces. And the short piece of news is that everything changes. That's it. That's the short piece of news. So, however it was, and say, I just had it that way and it changed, everything changes. It will change another zillion times between now and next Saturday. So if it's in a place where you think this is good, don't knock yourself out to keep it there because (laughs) it won't stay, it'll come back, it'll go forward and back and forward and back. And the point is it's not supposed to be a certain way. We're supposed to get a certain thing about how hard we work to push and shove our experience around so it's just a certain way and it's just going to be the way it is. It's not about having a certain experience. It's having the heart that would hold 
all kinds of experiences and be all right with it. It's about having a compassionate heart. And it's the only place we can get to have that is from sitting down in the middle of our lives. All of these people who I saw looking in the waiting room in the story of somebody else's life, it's because being in the story of our life is too hard often. We are confused. We're confused by wrong view, trapped by those wrong views often, about how life is and how we are. We have stories about ourselves that keep us held hostage. We're burdened by guilts we've forgotten. It's really interesting. One of the things that's happening to a number of people, always happens to me, is my memory gets better as I sit. This is even assuming ground-level memory, not even senior moment. It's happened to me 20 years ago as well. One of the things that happens when you sit and walk and sit and walk and be quiet for a long time and the mind quietens down is memories start to come back. Not only traumatic memories, all kinds of memories. It's like the whole life starts to play out. Some of them are quite plain memories. I think, why do I suddenly need to know the name of my second grade teacher? Where did that come from? It's like, or why do I need to remember what flowers my aunt wore in her hair at my seventh birthday? Where did that come from? It's all in there somewhere. Why does it come up now? Some of it comes up, I think. This is just as good a place to talk about it as ever. Some of it comes up, I think, because for the heart to be healed, it all has to come up. We have to discover what we're afraid of, what we're guilty about, what we think we can't stand. To discover that we can can stand it, it's not happening anymore. We have the heart to hold ourselves and our lives in compassion. And we have the possibility of healing There are a couple of things that I really, really believe. Or actually, I usually usually stay away from the word belief. Because then you talk about belief systems and -and so-and-so has this belief system and another person has another belief system. Falls into cosmologies. and This is what I trust. I think it's a better way to say it. This is what I trust. I trust that when we provide the kind of space that supports our life and our being awake, then the heart offers up by itself what needs to be healed. I also trust that a healed heart is a loving heart and that the result of that healing is that we come out more loving and compassionate. A lot of times we talk about getting to be more like ourselves. I think we get more like the best version of ourselves. Sometimes I think what we're doing by, by this practice day after day where there is no place to hide. Have you noticed that? There is no place to hide. The mind is 
and the awareness faculty is merciless. There's no place that you can hide in there from the truth as it comes up. So it's not that we just get to be more ourselves. We get to be the best version of ourselves through compassion, really. By the way, that little business about you can't hide, I discovered that very early on when I began to discover that every time I struggled with disagreeable feeling in my mind and my body, that the struggle itself augmented the suffering, and that if I were to open to it, as all of my teachers kept saying, open to it and open to it and open to it, if I would really do it, inevitably things would move, things would change, and my suffering would be eased. I can remember one time, I don't even remember if it was suffering, pain of mind or body, but it was pain of something and suffering around the struggle with it. I remember sitting on my zafu, I remember which zafu in what place, and saying in my inner voice, saying, here I am, I am now, I am opening, I surrender to this pain. I honestly heard probably my own voice interiorly saying to myself, who are you kidding? (laughs) Because really, it was a ploy. You know, I kind of knew you surrender and it gets better. But really, (laughs) surrendering is very hard to do. You have to give up who you are and your story and your story about your story. It's a very hard thing. It is merciless awareness. You can't hide. There's nothing to hide behind. And we do so little other. This is such an un... uh, Sometimes I say to people, this is a naked practice. Sometimes I say it's an unelaborated practice. More frivolous mood, I would say. It's not doodled up with any kind of frills. It's the plainest practice in the world. Here you are for a long period of time. Eventually you can't hide. What I believe is we get to be the best version of our own self. We don't just get to be our own self and say, well, this is me, tough, take it or leave it, and lump it. We get to be ourselves with refreshed hearts, really changed by an awareness of suffering really compassionate through our awareness of suffering, through our own suffering. I think sometimes we think we're going to come to practice. I don't know anybody who came to practice because of um, a commitment to respond to the suffering of the world. It's a noble commitment, and I hope we end that way. But I think we most of us come through some awareness of our own pain and our own suffering. Somehow we know that there's got to be a way out. I actually thought when I began my practice that it was going to be a way to overcome pain. I didn't quite get the difference between pain and suffering. Some dismay, I discovered it's not pain that we're going to overcome. A friend in a related discipline who said, if you didn't want pain, you came to the wrong planet. Part of this sphere of incarnation is that there's pain because there's impermanence and loss 
and a continual shifting to shuffling to adapt to shifting circumstances. It's hard to stay comfortable. There is no place of permanent satisfaction in this life except the refuge of a benevolent heart. That's the only place. And that's what we are really trying to discover, the fact that it is our birthright. We can not create it, but reconnect with it. very hard. I remember talking some years ago, I was talking on the telephone to my friend Julie Western. <clears throat> She's one of the teachers in this tradition. And it was a time that Julie had some really painful things happening in her life. And I had some painful things happening in my life. And we were talking to each other on the telephone. She's telling her pain and her suffering and I was telling my pain and my suffering. And we both said to each other, you know, Julie, you know, if we didn't struggle, we wouldn't suffer. But we are. It was really a, a very um, sustaining moment. And it was much better than us telling each other, let go or open to it. We both realized it's extremely hard to do. If we would, we could. Actually, I found that I find, not I found, I find that the experience of being retrapped and retrapped and retrapped in periods of suffering and knowing that my suffering will be over if I stop struggling and struggling anyway is a huge piece of my own compassionate response. So I know that just as I would like to be happy, and I even know how, it's not that easy. We have habits of the mind, have all our fear systems. It's hard to become a changed person. You have to do it over and over and over again. That's why it takes a long time. That's also why I'm encouraging to everybody about how their practices. We're not supposed to finish. This is really a practice for a lifetime. We get it a little bit clear, a little bit put together, a little bit we come to a place where we're not suffering, and then we get caught again. I've actually in the last couple of years been taking a great deal of relief from the fact that you do it over and over and over again. Get caught and get free and get caught and get free and get caught and get free. Maybe a little less caught, a little less often, a little more quickly free. I think I imagined originally that I'd get altogether free and it would last for good and all. And that doesn't happen. So I began to hold it in the same way that I think to myself, no matter how many showers I take today, I'm going to take another one tomorrow. Just do that all over again. And I'm going to eat tomorrow as well. And that there are certain things that we do to sustain a clarity of mind because we're continually challenged by our lives. We come here and we sit quietly. We relax. People who were surprised and they said, just when I got it together, that's when all this stuff started to come up. That's why all the stuff started to come up. Because the mind got a little bit quiet, the body got a little bit comfortable, 
not so concerned with the topmost stories and the body doesn't hurt enough to preoccupy your attention that's exactly when I have this inner image that the heart at some point says now's my chance it just got quiet person has a little bit of time here it is you know, like, like you could push a button on a computer readout you could say okay now I am ready like in Cape Canaveral here's my image they were gonna, when they're going to launch a rocket, for, uh, a, a spacecraft from uh, shuttle from Cape Canaveral, sometimes they say it's all clouded over, so we cannot launch this spacecraft. But then suddenly they say, okay, there's a break in the clouds, break in the clouds, boom, they push the button and it's out of there. <laughs> I had a very, really uh, exciting teaching that from on that one time from uh, a teacher many of us met uh, in the, in, in just in the last some years, uh, a man named um, Punja, Punja Ji, uh, honorific, was a uh, wonderful teacher in uh, India, in the uh, Advaita tradition, a student of Ramana Maharshi, and many of us, all of us, I guess, went at one time or another in the early 90s to study with him. And I was tremendously, blissfully euphoric in his presence. There's something about, had such an energy around him that quite without him saying anything, the room was charged with a kind of an energy. It was an intensely rapturous experience for me. And I had the worst nightmare I have ever had in my entire life on one of the nights that we were there. It was so terrifying. I could not get myself to tell my husband the nightmare in the morning. Couldn't bear to say what had happened. But I, and I, I told um, Punjaji later on, in either that day or the next day, I said, well, how can it happen when I am so peaceful and so focused and so present and in fact so full of rapture completely beside myself how could it happen that this most terrible image would come up out of me and he said aha I said that's exactly why he said when the heart is wide enough and spacious enough and excited enough and blissful enough and everything enough to be able to hold it the worst imprints that are hidden somewhere inside your memory come up and come out they come out in dreams and he said it's wonderful that you had that dream because now that imprint this is his cosmology but I love it said now that imprint will not be there to impact any future incarnation like it's out of there it's gone I love that idea that it was up and out and gone So I think to myself, in a less dramatic version, when we get quiet and focused, our stuff comes up for us to look at. Not necessarily in the night, but for some people in the night. So I'm telling you, if you're having nightmares, I share with you the Punjaji story so you might hold your nightmares in a more spacious place. Like, oh, good, won't have to do that again ever. The same with the stories that, that are part of the traps of our lives. 
We remember this and this happened to me. Did I tell you about the cooked vegetables? Did I tell a story about cooked vegetables? A friend of mine went to a workshop somewhere in the last year and told me this story. It was a weekend uh, residential workshop and a limited number of people. So people saw each other over the course of some days and some meals. And she said at one meal, uh, the workshop leader who had sat been sitting at her same table for several meals, said, um, I notice you don't eat any uh, cooked vegetables. Why is that? My friend said, um, when I was a child, my mother obliged me to eat cooked vegetables. That's why. (laughs) The workshop leader thought about it for a while and said, that was a long time ago. Now, I, when I thought about that story over and over, I think it's a great story because it seems to me that the reason that my friend doesn't eat the cooked vegetables is that she doesn't like cooked vegetables. That was probably why her mother obliged her and she has the bad feelings about it. If she had liked the cooked vegetables, her mother wouldn't have had to oblige her. She would have, it would have been a non-event. The fact of the obliging was probably pursuant to the not liking to begin with. But here was a whole story, probably a whole lifelong story, about my mother and her obliging me and forcing me and this and that and who knows if the mother is even on this plane of existence anymore. But we can build a whole story about our mother and our relationship and being obliged. And maybe the story is I don't like cooked vegetables. We are held prisoner by certain stories until they come up and we look at them and we say, is this story true? I, was, I made a list, just not in the moment, but out of thinking over the last couple of days. And the stories that people tell themselves, I'm not doing well enough. It's an amazing story to tell oneself. Compared to what? Uh, how would we know how well we should be doing or where we are? I shouldn't be having these critical thoughts. Why not? <laughs> Why? We don't have to have mean thoughts or uh, malevolent thoughts, but critical thoughts. I mean, one of the things we have is a critical faculty. It allows us to discern we should do this, we should do that. Why should we not have critical thoughts? It's not the thoughts, it's the quality of the heart, really. I should have had more insights. (laughs) That's another very... Compared to what? How many insights does it take to make an enlightened heart? We don't know. That's the thing. I should have had more moments of mindfulness. How many did you have? How many is needed? You know, I I had a teacher once who inspired me tremendously. I think I did tell you this story about him saying, every moment that you practice counts because every moment of mindfulness erases a moment of conditioning. And it was so inspiring to me because I had this vision of myself erasing away all the time. And that sometimes when I was running out of steam in my zeal, I would think to myself, I have no idea. I could see myself erasing all this blackboard full of scribble. And I think, you know, how do I know that there isn't just one more scribble left to erase? So it would fire up my zeal. But then I more recently realized that as I am erasing all the scribble, 
I am also creating more scribble. So the idea of I'll just erase the last scribble and then coast to the finish line is nonsense, actually. So that this is a lifelong practice. So the idea about I, I should be ahead of where I am. Okay, I wonder if I should tell this story about no teacher that you know or who is anywhere around here or will meet once said to me uh, in an interview, how many years have you been practicing? And I said, however many, I don't remember how many. And they said, really, you should be way ahead of where you are now. I tell you that story because by, by great grace, I didn't believe it. I just didn't believe it. I thought, this person is wrong. Compared to what? Where should I be? How do they know? How do they know where I am? I share that with you, even though I had to tell that story about someone that I thoroughly disguised. Um, Because nobody knows where you are, or what's coming next, or how much you've got to go. Not us, not you. Nobody knows. You know, all of those things, I should be ahead of myself, I should have had more insights, I shouldn't have these critical thoughts. Uh, they're all, I shouldn't be me. I should be somebody else. That's a, but they all amount to, I should be somebody else in some hypothetical version of me that's better than me. But we're just us. We are our unique selves. We get to be our unique selves, most fully ourselves. Maybe... I hope, kinder. That's what we get to be. We would never keep a friend who treated us as badly as we do. Suppose we had someone following us around right off our right shoulder all day, saying to us what we say to ourselves. You're not doing this right. You should have gone home at the end of three weeks. You wasted the whole morning. You didn't do this right. You didn't do that right. That person is much more mindful than I am. Look how they walk. Look how they eat. Look how they this. Look how they that. We would we would never keep a friend who talked to us that way. And yet we talk to ourselves that way. And we don't catch ourselves doing it. Mostly we don't. Somebody, a few people, of course, have told me this, but somebody just recently said, I was walking along yesterday and I started a story, a whole long story about my life, telling it to myself, and then I stopped and I said, wait a minute, I know this. (laughs) We, We behave always like we're telling it to somebody else for the first time. It's an old story. It's like my friend with the vegetables. That was a long time ago. You know, it's not now. Now is now. I think it's because we're so self-conscious. We're worrying. When we think all those thoughts, I'm not as good as we, I should be, they're somehow conditioned. I mean, we didn't get born that way. They're conditioned with an idea that we got somewhere along the way from our who knows who, that we should be different. We identify with that story. We create a separate self that should be different. Some hypothetical model. We've told on and off through this retreat various Dalai Lama stories. Someone told one the other day about him fooling around with a hat, I think being playful with somebody's hat. 
this is my probably my best Dalai Lama story about um, at a um, conference in Tucson where he was teaching uh, chapter six of Shanti Deva's guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, uh, which is a chapter on patience. It was a marvelous week. It was just one of those thrilling weeks. Twelve hundred people. And he, reading verse by verse, chapter 6, reading it in Tibetan, commenting in Tibetan, and having the translator then do it over in English. Now, um, the Dalai Lama speaks very good English, but in order to do such a nuanced exegesis of text, he did it in Tibetan so he could do every possible nuance. And then the translator, whose English is wonderful, uh, then would do it over in English. And the Dalai Lama would appear to be reading the next verse as the translator was doing the translation. So he would say, translator would be translating, and he'd be apparently looking at the text. And then at some point, somewhere, during near the end of the week, so it's gone on for a while, he did one particular verse, he was looking again at the next verse, the Dalai Lama, uh, the translator, was translating, and suddenly he looked up and he said, no, no, that's not what I said. I said this, this, and this. And the translator said, no, no, you said that, that, and that. And it wasn't really a philosophical difference. It was some um, some syntax business. It was grammatical more than anything else. And he said, no, 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 no. What I said was this, this, this. And the translator held firm. He said, no, no, no. What you said was that, that, that. And the Dalai Lama looked back in the text, and he looked up, and he said, You're right. I made a mistake. Ha! In his normal way. I said, like a laugh. I thought to myself, what would I do if I made a mistake in front of 1,200 people, all of whom came to see me not make a mistake? Actually, I, I think when I think back on that whole week, I think I, the whole week I came there to see him make that mistake because that was probably the biggest lesson that I learned. He has nobody to protect. He knows there's no one there. It doesn't matter. He knows that text. He knows it perfectly well. He knows it forward and backward. I told you the story, or I told it sometime in these six weeks, of him coming to the end of that text and really crying over it. probably knows the text by heart. I made a mistake. We don't have to protect ourselves so much. We're just us, people. We make mistakes. Somebody asked him once at another conference in Irvine. He uh, was taking questions. A whole huge auditorium, thousands of people. And someone said, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course. Huh? He said, of course. He said, things are happening. They're not the way you wanted them to happen. Anger arises. But it's not a problem. <laughs> so you clearly realize that when what he's saying is that anger arises as long as we're alive as the response to unpleasant experience. Something is happening. You don't want it to happen. Anger arises. You figure out what should we do. You figure out what is the wisest, most discerning, kindest response to make the situation right without adding to it with more grief and more anger? How should we protect, really, the fundamental lovingness 
of our heart. So people here are having the stories of their lives come up, the ways in which they've been pained. They feel bad about it. They feel the pain again. You do too. I do too. You remember something else, remember something else. We feel sad. Sometimes you're aware, even if you are not feeling at this moment sad or overwhelmed, sometimes you hear someone else is crying. You know that they are sad or overwhelmed. Sometimes somebody somebody asked me, why do I feel so overwhelmed with sadness? This particular thing came up in my mind. Somebody said, I felt sad about it. But then I felt tremendously sad about it, way sadder than what it actually was. I think actually what happens is we really tune in to the depth of sadness in this whole painful world that it's very hard. It's impossible to live without pain. And it's very hard to keep a loving and benevolent heart in spite of the challenges that are always present to it. There's one last thing that I mentioned that I want to talk about just a little bit. And that's about the healing that we do, not of the wrongs that were done to us, but of the mistakes that we made. One of the things that seems to be part of the package of paying attention is that we're often reminded of uh, what we've done that wasn't kind. When... uh, When that's happened to me, I've sometimes been quite surprised with the impact of it, a small event a long time ago. Some events, this is is a story that um, made a very big impression on me that someone told me in the last year is this. His cousin, this person told me the story, said, my cousin is a physician, he's a dermatologist, was driving his car on a Sunday morning on a country road, and about a mile ahead of him, down the road and up the road, at the crest of the next hill, there were a um, big semi-truck, big, huge truck, followed by two cars. And as I could see them from the distance, I was just at the crest of the next hill, all the way down, all the way up, that semi-truck buckled for some reason, and the car behind it rode into it. And he said, I could see it was a terrible accident, so I pushed 911 on my car phone, called for it. But in a minute, I was there. And he said, I'm a dermatologist. I don't, you know, I'm not a trauma doctor, and I don't, I'm not an emergency doctor. But nevertheless, I am a physician, so I stopped. And um, the person who was driving the truck was very, very uh, injured. The person in the car behind that person was dead. 
The person in the second car was the wife of the person in the first car. He said, I made a decision that the person in the car who was dead, it was clearly dead, he said, I made a decision to really try to do the kinds of trauma interventions that you do with someone who's been really very hurt, whatever you do for shock, and until the paramedics arrived. He said, I did what I could, and the woman in the car was the wife of the man who was now dead, was shouting at me, try to revive him, try to revive him, maybe you can revive him. He said, I made a decision, though, that I thought that I needed to use what I knew how to do to keep the truck driver alive. He said, and the paramedics came, and then I was able to leave the situation. Ambulances came. He said, I went to work. I was on duty all day in that hospital. And he said, at the end of the day, as, as the afternoon wore on, I got a bigger and bigger headache. And finally, I had such a terrible headache I realized I'd been thinking all day. Um, I shouldn't. I maybe I made a mistake. Maybe, had I done CPR on the man in the car, he would have stayed alive, or I could have gotten a heartbeat back, or the paramedics would have arrived and been able to do something. Maybe I made a mistake. And as I, the day passed and went along. I realized I was getting a headache because I was so tense about it. And the headache finally got so bad, I decided to go home because I couldn't work anymore. And I got in the elevator to go home. And uh, the pathologist in our hospital got in the elevator with me. It just so happened that he got into the same elevator with me. And we were riding down in the elevator, and he said, it's been a terrible day. He said, the very first thing this morning, there was a man who was killed because his car ran into a semi-truck out on the highway and they brought him in. And he said, that must have been some terrible crash because his injuries were so massive. He surely was absolutely dead in the impact. And the person who told me the story said, my cousin said, just as he heard the story, his headache went away. And it's not that he didn't feel very sad, of course, that the man had died, but it was such a teaching on how heavy it weighs in the heart when we think we've made a mistake, even that we didn't mean to make a mistake, even that we didn't make a mistake, but if we think we made a mistake. When we become aware of mistakes we made, out of blindness, out of confusion, because that's where all mistakes come from, but a seemingly in our conscious memory. And it's not that he didn't feel very sad, of course, that the man had died, but it was such a teaching on how heavy it weighs in the heart when we think we've made a mistake, even that we didn't mean to make a mistake, even that we didn't make a mistake, but if we think we made a mistake. When we become aware of mistakes we made, out of blindness, out of confusion, because that's where all mistakes come from, but seemingly in our conscious memory, with intent, it's so painful. Somebody told me a story like that today, and I don't remember theirs, but I remember telling them, 
as they told it to me, I remembered that 40-some years ago, when I was in college, this is a completely trivial story, away from the completely huge story of the truck. When I was in college, I went out on a blind date with someone that someone in my dormitory fixed me up with, and it was a prank. It was, first of all, an incorrect thing to do because I was engaged to my husband, so I shouldn't have been going out to begin with. (laughs) And I never told him that, and now I'm saying it on a tape. Okay. (laughs) It's probably good for me. Public confession is one of those things that helps the soul. And I just remembered it this morning, anyway. I went out on a blind date that was a prank. My friend who made the date with this boy at Columbia across the street said, I have a friend uh, who's visiting. She's an exchange student from, uh, just for a few days, she's visiting in, uh, here and traveling around this country. I met her when I was in Italy as an exchange student. She's Italian. So I went out on a date with this boy and spoke in a very thick accent feigning an Italian accent, spent the whole evening with him, kept up the Italian accent, went back to the dormitory, said goodbye to him, pretended to be leaving the following day to go back, well, to continue my trip and then go back to Italy, professed to have enjoyed his company very much. And then several days later, I passed him on Broadway and 116th Street, walking along with a friend, talking in my regular voice. And I'm not at all sure that he saw me, but I think he did. And at the moment, I felt really bad. And I forgot it for 42 years until this morning. Now, the reason I tell you that story is I think that everything stays in there. Everything stays in there. So I feel committed. This is not the first time I've discovered what's in there, but I think part of the business of paying attention is if we pay attention long enough, what needs to be expiated, what needs to come out, what needs to be healed, because I think the piece of my heart that was hiding that piece of not good feeling about myself, I hope is now out. I tell you about it. You laugh about maybe you learn something. Maybe I expiate a little bit of my bad feeling by causing you to, and me to be determined to live with great honesty always. I have no idea about what that boy's name was or where he is, but wherever he is, may he be free of danger and have mental happiness and physical <laughs> happiness and ease of well-being. And I'm happy that I told you the story. May it serve for our waking up. Because I think that that other part of people saying, you know, as I sit, I have terrible memories of what happened to me, and I have terrible memories of what I did. All of them get healed. We discover we can hold them, we can make the right decision about them. We can actually determine to live, determined to hold our place in the world and uh, choose to have a place of peace. I thought I would end by reading you a story since I read Horton last week and second only to Horton. 
This is a story of someone determined to hold their place of peace and to be just who they were. Once upon a time in Spain, you know this story? No. Once upon a time in Spain, there was a little bull, and his name was Ferdinand. All the other little bulls he lived with would run and jump and butt their heads together, but not Ferdinand. He had a favorite spot out in the pasture under a cork tree. It was his favorite tree, and he would sit in its shade all day and smell the flowers. Sometimes his mother, who was a cow, would worry about him. She was afraid he would be lonesome all by himself. Why don't you run and play with all the other little bulls and skip and butt your head, she would say. I think a lot of our current culture says, why don't you do that? What we are doing is countercultural, really. We are doing something instead. We are stopping, looking at our lives and saying, I choose peace. But Ferdinand would shake his head. I like it better here, where I can just sit quietly and smell the flowers. His mother saw that that he was not lonesome, and because she was an understanding mother, even though she was a cow, she let him just sit there and be happy. As the years went by, Ferdinand grew and grew until he was very big and strong. All the other bulls who had grown up with him in the same pasture would fight each other all day. They would butt each other and stick each other with their horns. They wanted to be picked to fight at the bullfights in Madrid, but not Ferdinand. Just like to sit quietly under the cork tree and smell the flowers. One day, five men came in very funny hats to pick the biggest, fastest, roughest bull to fight in the bullfights in Madrid. All the other bulls ran around snorting and butting, leaping and jumping, So the men would think they were very fierce and strong and pick them. Ferdinand knew that they wouldn't pick him, and he didn't care. So he went out to his favorite court tree to sit down. He didn't look where he was sitting. I think this is the part where we say, even with the best of intentions, to keep our hearts calm and clear, to respond in the way that we want to, every once in a while... Instead of sitting on the nice cool grass, he sat in the shade, he sat on a bumblebee. Well, if you were a bumblebee and a bull sat on you, what would you do? You would sting him, and that's just what this bee did to Ferdinand. Wow, did it hurt. Ferdinand jumped up with a snort. He ran around puffing and snorting, butting and pawing the ground as if he was crazy. The five men saw him, and they all shouted with joy. He was the largest and fiercest bull of all. Just the one for the bullfights in Madrid. So they took him away for the bullfight day in a cart. What a day it was. Flags were flying, bands were playing, and all the lovely ladies had flowers in their hair. They had a parade into the bullring, so now you see he's going to have a choice. They had a parade into the bullring. First came the banderilleros with long, sharp pins with ribbons on them to stick in the bull and made him mad. Next came the picadores who rode skinny horses and they had long spears to stick in the bull and make him madder. I think those are the vicissitudes of life. Hamlet called them slings and arrows. Um, 
Then came the matador, the proudest of all. He thought he was very handsome, and he bowed to the ladies. He had a red cape and a sword, and was supposed to stick the bull last of all. Then came the bull. You know who he was, don't you? Ferdinand. They called him Ferdinand the Fierce, and all the banderilleros were afraid of him, and the picadores were afraid of him, and the matador was scared stiff. Ferdinand ran into the middle of the ring and everyone shouted and clapped because they thought he was going to fight fiercely and butt and snort and stick his horns around. But not Ferdinand. When he got to the middle of the ring, he saw the flowers and all the lovely ladies' hair and he just sat down quietly and smelled. He wouldn't fight and be fierce no matter what they did. He just sat and smelled. And the bandrilleros were mad and the picadores were madder and the matador was so mad cried because he couldn't show off with his cape and his sword. So they had to take Ferdinand home. And for all I know, he is sitting there still under his favorite cork tree, smelling the flowers just quietly. He is very happy. So this remains... um, By the way, this book was written in... first published in 1936. Um, I think what we are trying to do is learn that there are all kinds of situations in life that can provoke us to snort and butt and run around and jump up and down. And we can do that because we're alive. And in response to the events of life, we may, briefly, but then we can discover that fundamentally we have hearts that are happiest if they're not fighting, and hearts that make a decision to return to being peaceful, cultivate peacefulness. We'll all be different kinds of people. We're not going to all come out looking like some, I don't know, slow-down person. Sometimes people think that, that the practice that we do is slow. It's not slow, it's slow here. People ask me, how much time do you practice in your life? What percentage of every day do you practice mindfulness? And what percentage of every day do you practice loving-kindness? And I tell them 100% of every day, Mindfulness, 100% of everyday loving-kindness. They're not mutually exclusive. They're mutually supportive. It doesn't mean that I am clear every moment or loving every moment. It means I'd like to be. That means that's where my intention is. It means that's what I imagine is a possibility. That's actually my practice. My practice is trying to stay awake and alert and clear in a non-adversarial relationship to my life. That's my practice. Towards that end, I do everything that I do, and it sometimes includes sitting and walking slowly and preserving silence, which is what we're doing here. But this is one form. We don't finish practicing when we leave here. It's a lifelong practice. We don't get it all done. We keep doing it over and over. But that's not discouraging. That's so exciting. Imagine if we came to the last moment of our life 
and could do that non-contentiously. Whenever it is, whether it's tomorrow or sometime way, way far from now, whether we have time to anticipate it or not time to anticipate it. Maybe I should end with a housekeeping note because one of the things that inspired my practice two decades ago when I was a little bit more, when I was just beginning, is one of my friends um, died quite young, early 40s, and um, of an illness that she struggled with for a while and we thought she'd get better for a while, but then she didn't. And she could anticipate the end. And she had time to really mend all the relationships in her life that needed mending. And I was very moved by her diligence in the mending. She wasn't happy about the fact that her life was ending. One of the really clear and honest things that inspired me a lot, when she said to me just a few days before she died, she said, you know, I've grown so much emotionally from this illness. She said, the truth is, though, I would have rather not grown and be alive. That's the truth very touched by that. You know, we don't have to wish for anything other than a long life. We can want things. We can want a long life and health and happiness and ease. It's not about not wanting that. It's about wanting that and living it with vigor and enthusiasm. And then being able to say, okay, when it's not time anymore. And the other part that really inspired me on a long-term basis was the fact that I knew that Pat had a lot of time to make all the reparations that had to be made. And I thought to myself, I never know how much time I'm going to have. Maybe I won't have so much lead time. You don't know. So I thought to myself, I better keep do my karma cleaning every day. I better keep up with the housekeeping, not wait for the end. And I made a decision at that time to really keep my housekeeping current. So what we try to do, what I try to do, is keep it current. And then when I come and sit, have some period of time where I can really do intensive practice, I discover, as many you, uh, of you are, that seemed like all, was, everything was tidied up, but there was more tidying to do. There was yet another piece of our story that we hadn't forgiven that there was another piece of injury that was done to us or that we did that hasn't been purified. And eventually we come out with those kinds of hearts that are easily loving. So I hope you are inspired to say to yourself, that this is one last week of not coasting to the finish line, but really doing the work that you came here to do, whether you came here two weeks ago or five weeks ago. It's like, are you here, Betty? Yes, I'm here. Since you're here, whatever it needs to get done will get offered up to you. It's an amazing process where you don't have to say, I'll have the next piece of work 
the next piece of work arrives whenever there's room, when there's a break in the clouds. Say, resting, boom, here's something else. Instead of thinking, may I get this all clear and then fix, keep it that way so I can exit in that good shape, why? You're just exiting into the rest of your life. Are you going to continue the same work? There isn't any reason that you have to get a certain amount of it done by next Saturday because you're going to have the whole rest of the life to be doing it. How about the other intention? May whatever I can do today, may I be up for it. May I not miss a single opportunity to miss a single piece of information that is now available for me to hold in my awakened heart. That's a good place to end. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 20, 1999. It is an offering of the 